0: Pentagram, dedicated to Henry Farman. In the years of the primal war from the dawn terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and port, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him an oil skin from the heart of an holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, the man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for iron. The team, the 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 from Ladies and germs, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever. It's Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous. And this is another episode. Who knows what number it is? I'm not quite sure because I'm just recording this one off the cuff, so to speak. And what I'm going to try and do is there's a few strange and curious places that I've been on my travels when we were allowed to travel. And who knows when that might be again, if at all, who knows. So I thought it might be interesting, seeing as I have a lot of photographs, little strange videos to illustrate the conversation, To maybe make a few, um, what shall we call them, genuine, I think there's a documentary on Netflix, a documentary series about this called Death Tourism, before it was a cool hipster thing, Um, which was not bad. I, I liked the, if you know it, maybe you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, go and have a look at it. It's not bad. The presenter is a little bit too chipper for my liking, a little bit too nice to be presenting a program about death tourism. I would have rather somebody grumpy and dour. Um, And I'm available for the next series if Netflix need me. However, I've always been attracted to visiting strange, curious, somewhat say morbid places, I suppose. My idea of being at the beach is, uh, well, the idea of being at the beach is my idea of hell. I am not a lizard. I don't need to be, as Bill Hicks said, where dirt meets water. Um, I don't need to see fat German tourists eating ice cream cones or be around screaming children or dogs barking, chasing sticks, or whatever, whatever people do at the beach. Whatever that, whatever that is, that enjoyment you get from it, I get the same from uh, visiting... Uh, some form of concentration camp or some form of museum of torture or some form of museum of medieval torture devices or an old creepy castle or something gloomy. Give me something gloomy with a good death count and I am far more interested than sitting at the beach. And I also think, for the record, Irish people don't really belong at the beach. Uh, They're far too pale with their frozen turkey limbs and their pasty complexion to be um, fouling up the beach. We aren't. We aren't supposed to be there. It's because our heads generally look like somebody else's head is trying to break out from underneath them, like we're wearing a sort of Scooby-Doo mask or something. Um, Well, I speak from objectively while living here. Um, I'm more of an infiltrator, so to speak, but uh, there is no doubt Irish people don't belong at the beach, so... That's the premise of this podcast. So, what I'm going to do is, uh, if you aren't looking on YouTube, maybe have a look on YouTube, I think. Well, I hope. I say this before I've actually rendered the YouTube piece. It could be a disaster. Who knows? But I have an awful lot of pictures and videos from this particular place that I visited. So, I'll try and set a bit of the scene. I'm not going to go into the entire history of what happened, because that would be well, that's not really my place. And I think that considering there was a documentary series, um, not a documentary series, a a fictional series only two years ago that came out to great acclaim, I think you can go and watch that. But I'm talking about Chernobyl uh, in the Ukraine or in the former Soviet Union, as it was then. Uh, A nuclear accident that occurred on Saturday, the 26th of April, 1986. Uh, in near the city of Pripyat, uh, which is north Ukraine, north of um, Kiev, anyway, and there are several places I suppose that captured the imagination of of uh, a young Averill, a young Avril, uh, there in my gilded pantaloons and um, foppish auburn hair, who was fascinated with a few different places. Um, and it's many a time I would. Uh, what am I talking about? I'm trying to be some sort of Victorian. Um, anyway, what I'm talking about is that there's there was a few places when I where I, when I was a kid that I was quite fascinated or obsessed by, and thank I've actually visited mm, three three or four of them now over the last ten years. Uh, Easter Island, um, Anchor Wat, but I was morbidly fascinated as a child with chernobyl the news at the time was catastrophic once it broke i mean it took a month for it to really break in the european news cycle um i think it was because hans blick who was working for uh some form of the united nations or something to do with um the measurement of nuclear fallout noticed that there was um, acid rain falling in Sweden. You may remember his name because he was one of the people who went into Iraq to look for uh, WMDs and didn't find any, Mr. Blair. Um, However, he was one of the first people to break the news. I think that meteorological stations over Sweden and Switzerland, amongst others, had noticed this acid rain falling. And the uh, Russian media hadn't really, of course, at the time we're talking about under Soviet communist rule, uh, very much like we are now, uh, had tried to hide the magnitude of the explosion. <clears throat> and um, they tried to hide the magnitude of the explosion. In fact, it only managed to make a small paragraph, I think, in, in Pravda uh, the day or two or three after it happened. They tried <clears throat> to keep it under wraps, so to speak. Uh, and the reality is that if um the if the um if the rods in the reactor, uh, that's good name for a band actually. Ro- rod in the reactors. Um, if the rods in the reactor had, uh, you know, there was a steam explosion and an open air explosion, but if they'd reached the water table, which inexplicably was underneath. Uh, they think that an explosion several times the size of Hiroshima or Nagasaki would have happened. And I mean, the reality is that it could have realistically wiped out a great portion of European civilization, created an ash cloud that would have made that pesky little Icelandic volcano seem like a trifling matter. Um, Crops would have died, acid rain falling on many, many European cities. And The reality is if it wasn't for the brave, the bravery of those first responders, those first um, and poor uh, firemen, uh, soldiers, those uh, Russian men who gave their lives and met some of them in the fullness of time in the first couple of weeks, gave their lives willingly in order to save uh, more and more people. Uh, if you watch the documentaries about it, their bravery and the conditions they worked in, the, the sheer hell of building this tiny tunnel underneath is staggering. It's staggering uh, to see the sacrifice that they made. Um, you know, I mean, I know you've been upset about something somebody said on Twitter, which is comparable to the suffering of those men. But... Um, Yes, sorry, I shouldn't try and be pithy. It doesn't really suit me. Uh, I should stick to my lane, which isn't comedy or social uh, conscience. You also have to set this to the backdrop of the Cold War. Don't forget, this is 1986. So even in Ireland, even on a small island off the west coast of Europe, essentially in the middle of the Atlantic, that would have been geographically relatively isolated from... The wars that took place on the European mainland even we as children had fallout lessons in school we had we were taught um, special classes about what to do if there was a nuclear attack a nuclear fallout there was cartoons aimed at children which we saw at the ages of 10 11 or 12 and it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary to come back from primary school to my parents, with worries about nuclear weaponry. You had the you had all the protests on Greenham Common, I think, or Clapham Common, Greenham Common, the anti-nuclear and no-nukes protests. All of this was very much gripping the consciousness of the public all around the world. You know, you have the two great superpowers lined up opposite each other. The Cold War is playing out on one side with... Uh, Thatcher and Reagan and the kind of form of Reaganomics at the time that was slowly moving through Eastern Europe. There was, you know, you had Lech Wales in Poland, the Solidarnos movement, and the tacit support of the Catholic Church, which was undermining communism all throughout um, areas of Eastern Europe. Uh, You know, and in uh, those early 80s I suppose they were um, workers' movements like Solidarno's started the ball rolling and then you had Thatcher and Reagan running with it and then you had Gorbachev. So set all of this as a child to the backdrop of a very, very great fear about nuclear war, about nuclear power, about the um, dreadful fate that awaited mankind and then out of nowhere comes this massive nuclear explosion it really um, set an incredibly dark tone at the time and realistically once you've been there once you once you visited there once you understand the technology and what actually failed within the system you do realize how close Europe came to um, some form of of, I'm not going to say extinction, but at least a dreadful, dreadful fate. Anyway, so I've always wanted to visit. I'd always wanted to visit Pripyat. Always wanted to visit Chernobyl. Um, for some reason, it was something that obsessed me as a child. And four or five years ago, is it five or six years ago? I got the chance. Um, Primordial played a gig in the Ukraine. We played with Rotting Christ, Blind Guardian, um, and a bunch of other bands. On what? A- I think is more like an island um in an inlet just off just in the river opposite the main city of kiev uh it's it's odd and strange that the whole that the gig even happened in the first place that we actually went there I mean the whole thing seemed to be hanging by a thread um, but we got there uh there you know to this massive stage, maybe three or four thousand people were there the uh there were some people of course who stayed away as is quite often happens in Eastern Europe and actually in South America as well if people don't like the local promoter they'll stay away. It might, it might be the only chance they'll ever get to see said band but they will sort of stick to their principles when it comes to who's booking or promoting the gig. It's a very odd way of looking at things if you ask me. It's not something that would happen here. People would go regardless but you know things roll differently in Brazil or the Ukraine. And um so the gig was, you know, was great gig. Um Very strange rambling gig. Virtually no people working there who appeared to be from the organisation. And it sort of ran itself with a whole load of excitable young volunteers who didn't know anything about amps or gear or drums or anything. But somehow it worked. And then I stayed in Kiev for about an extra five or six days. And one of my main intentions was to go to Chernobyl, to go to Pripyat. And this was before it became a kind of cool Instagram influencer thing to go there and take a picture of your bum, I think, you know besides some drastic ho- human horror and it's about, I think that there's some f- kind of like cabal of uh, let's, what should we call them a cabal of tourists sort of adventure mafia can we call it that? Because many of the places I visit around the world that have tourist sites that, you know, people throng to are very much, they cost the same to go and visit. Even if you're in a poor country, you pay Western prices, you go in your air-conditioned bus with very much the same logos, the same trappings. And I get the impression that it's all the same company. So this wasn't quite like that. I, I would imagine it became like this in uh, Chernobyl. But, you know... I do my death tourism before it's cool. So it cost about a hundred euro or so to go for the entire day. And it was a very, it, it, I'll try and illustrate the experience. And I'll try and illustrate it on YouTube with some videos, with some pictures. But it takes about an hour, hour and a half, two hours to get you know, north, north of um, Kiev in this little bus with maybe 10 or 12 other people. And my first impressions were that the the strange little woman who was doing the tour had this amazing habit of saying the object and the subject of the sentence uh, in every sentence. So she would go in 1986 in the town of Pripyat, north of Kiev, there has been great nuclear explosion. In this great nuclear explosion in Pripyat in 1986 many, many people have also died. And it would go like this back and forth. You get the subject and the object of the sentence, two, three, four times in every sentence. In fact, I almost offered to um, give her uh, English lessons on the way back to try and correct this, uh, what would you call it, language oversight. But she was uh, inexuberant in her knowledge and her attempt in trying to explain what was happening. Uh, And so that, you know, you got to see this documentary, this video, in typical old Soviet style and this old kind of TV it wasn't really that up to date and the subtitles were all vaguely wrong and there was a little bit of curation of the truth maybe, shall we say. But what you don't really realise is that uh, people, there are people who've lived in Pripyat since this has happened who just haven't moved away. they just old people who just stayed there and basically went, fuck it, I'm not going, fuck it. And where you drive up this really long, narrow, kind of like, I guess, horror movie soundtrack road into the woods. And it's very, very dense woods. And first of all, you stop just outside the town of Pripyat, and there's strange sort of fields full of white crosses. And you get to sort of poke around in some of the most eerie and strange environments. There's old um, schools there is you can you are they really at the time gave you freedom literally to walk around all these ruined houses with decayed and collapsing beams and stuff and just the most the creepiest the oddest things like um, Borstal houses for kids which had uh, loads and loads of um, stainless steel rusted beds and old dolls heads on them and books laying open on the floor and that's one of the things that you really the impression you really get from when you actually get to the town of Pripyat itself is the sense that people literally just left they literally just dropped everything that was in their hands and just ran and when you get to the town it's a very very unnerving experience now I did a thing whereby the guide was so irritating and I was so intolerant that as soon as the door opened I just legged it. And they let you leg it. And you have your own Geiger counter. And you just... I just... I'm off. And just would disappear. And they would go be back at the bus in 20 minutes. So you had 15 minutes to disappear off. um, You know, maybe killed by a nuclear bear or something like this. I wonder what I've got any superpowers then. Maybe. I'll never know. Anyway, the town of Pripyat itself is really, really strange. You've probably seen the famous picture of the... um, the Ferris wheel and there's there's a, a basically like an amusement park which is completely dilapidated and overgrown you can sit in the bumper cars you can just across the the town square is a supermarket which still has ingredients and all sorts of stuff spilled on the floor it still has boxes and the shelves the the, the old um, the old processing counter and everything and this is one of the things that makes you really feel odd, is when you first go in you have to pass they let you look around the town of Pripyat before you get nearer and nearer to the reactor and and it's a very unnerving and strange experience, and one of my odd moments where I just disappeared off into the undergrowth I was making my way through maybe shoulder high grass and um, overgrown um, I was going to say shrubbery in a sort of Monty Python voice, but what would be the purpose of that? Um grass, really long, long grass and completely overgrown and I realised I was standing in the middle of a football stadium when I looked up and looked around. The top of the stands were just about visible, everything falling apart, dilapidated Um, and you could kind of swing yourself up around and go up into the stand and see what would have once been maybe like a 10,000 capacity football stadium, just completely ruined and then you could basically go down the tunnel into the bowels of the stadium. And they, at the time, they sort of let us just wander around aimlessly. You would have your Geiger counter in your hand. It would be just going, and then you would uh, disappear off into the woods. And you realize that they'd they'd buried, um, the system had buried radioactive rods just under the ground in random places and without any, real knowledge of where they were or at least so they said and you got that sense when you had your Geiger counter that it would just go off it would just go off at any specific time and you weren't wearing a face mask or anything like this you know Um, so I could say i have been in Chernobyl and not worn a face mask but not been able to go on the bus in Dublin uh, right now without a face mask yeah well there you go and some of the places some of the situations some of the um, some of the buildings that you're in are acutely they have a strange strange atmosphere. There's a school you go into into this old, old school with these very long uh, corridors and you are allowed to just wander around on your own and being typically Russian there's no like health and safety guide and there's areas where the entire floor just drops away for two or three floors that if you weren't paying attention you could have fallen down but they basically would say, it is up to you to be careful. If you don't be careful, you might fall. Oh, You know, it is your fault. Um, or I could have just run away into the forest and never come back. Which, looking back now, might have been a good option. But this old school, this very strange old school, which had all of the children's desks were just literally left as they were with the, with the chairs pushed back, um, books on the table there was a bible open on the teacher's plinth i suppose you would call it, on the teacher's desk there was chalk still on the still on the board and um, there was some really really strange things like like a, a swimming pool full of gas masks just hundreds of gas masks it seemed to me um, just in this old swimming pool there was an old cinema just fallen to bits absolutely fallen to bits it would have been a great uh, Place to uh, make a video to as a band to play up there or something like this. But an old cinema just falling to ruin. Old wooden seats, old curtains, dilapidated. Now, hopefully, if I've done this correctly on YouTube, you'll see illustrations of the kind of thing that I mean. Um, and you were even allowed to wander around an old, several, like an old, one of those old communist style, I guess they're called, it's called brutalism, one of these old communist style um, well I suppose these 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 styles of living uh, tower blocks have been replicated across the United Kingdom, across Ireland and I think they inherited this from this Soviet style of um, Soviet style of tower block living and you're allowed to just wander around and you could like open press doors and find clothes still hanging there dusty clothes people with, you know, plates of like what would have the end of what would have been plates with knives and forks set out books open um curious things like if you really poked around you would have found people's bedrooms which had posters of uh american um cinema stars from the 1980s on the wall old russian pop stars obviously some teenager's room from the mid 80s that you're standing in and it was all very Creepy, very ghostly, I suppose, if those are two words that you like. Creeping and ghosting. (laughs) They've taken on a bit of a different meaning now. Um, But one thing that fascinates me about the whole trip was the level of um, personal jeopardy you were in, in that there was just broken glass everywhere and so many things to fall disastrously from and impale yourself on. And in reality... We just had this small woman as a guide, but there was no, which is curious for Russia, but there was no hefty dude, six foot, six inch behemoth of a man ready to um, drag you by the heels off by the scruff of the neck if you transgressed, um, which is very Russian or a dude in a suit or something like this. Um, there was nothing like that. And so you could just sort of walk around really on your own volition, deep into the forest. Deep into the tower block, p- poke around in rooms. Um, there was old machine rooms, what well, a thing that would have been. In, I imagine would have been some sort of a gym or sauna room, full of old tiles, old broken tiles, old broken baths, and all this kind of thing. And this is only just Pripyat. You're in, uh, and you get a sense of a town that was literally just evacuated the drop of a hat. And people would just left their entire lives there. You do wonder why even what, what they were able to bring with them because the severity of the explosion. I mean, we read nuclear radioactivity with a Geiger counter, but back then the Russians had some other system and they thought the counters were broken. They were flying over it, over the explosion with a helicopter and trying to take readings they thought the machines were broken, um, and you have your own Geiger counter when you're walking around. Now, some of you, I imagine, uh, would find that idea horrific, but it was also kind of thrilling in a weird way. I mean, they did tell us that you could only really be around the main reactor for an hour or two, maybe, maybe. Well, I mean, that's a Russian hour or two, so probably for a a pampered, you know, a suburban suburbanite like myself, that might only be half an hour in Western time. But because uh, they're a hardy bunch, the old Russians. Um, it's good to for a band, isn't it? And so you go from Pripyat then to the uh, the grasshopper thing, the grasshopper thing, the early warning system. What am I talking about? Grasshopper, not grasshopper, woodpecker, the woodpecker, um, early warning system. What? Why am I thinking about grasshopper? Oh, that must be something to do with that karate kid series on netflix or something which i haven't seen by the way but heard it has a great soundtrack anyway yes the early warning system um i think they were started operation in the mid 70s and didn't finish until 1989 and they're duga radars which means like arc or curve i think in russian and um they were super powerful Antenna, radio antenna, and they were so-called woodpecker because of the sort of the the, 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 the um, frequency that was being picked up around the rest of the world had this sort of tapping sequence, and so it was dubbed the woodpecker by people listening in on this um, certain kilohertz. Basically, a nuisance, a nuisance throughout the world. It was tapping into um, it, or affecting everything, commercial aviation. Uh, amateur radio operations, all sorts of stuff. It was just this massive um, disruptive frequency noise. Like I said, set this to the backdrop of the Cold War, of course. I mean, the Soviets have been working on early warning radar uh, for their anti-ballistic missile systems throughout the 60s. But these have been line of sight systems. Um, But when you stand there next to the um, woodpecker, it's so insanely massive, such an incredibly huge structure. It's almost jaw-dropping. You should see illustrations of it now there if you're on YouTube. Um, but the idea was that it, it built it was built at such a size um, to kind of uh, compensate for the curvature of the Earth, I guess, and so give the Soviets time to react to an early preemptive strike by the um, by the Americans. Uh, anyway, it's jaw-droppingly, insanely, massively huge, which is just outside. It's between Pripyat, I think really, now my geography of the whole situation will be wrong. But it's an early warning system that the Soviets built um well, to tell if the Russians or if the Americans had launched a first strike. And you'll probably see pictures of it now if you're looking on YouTube. And it's, it's a, d- a massive structure, almost, it seems like almost a kilometre high. I mean, that can't be right, can it? But two-thirds of a kilometre maybe high, this massive Uh, basically like a radio antenna observing every single movement of potential first strike in the world and this is back in the time during the Cold War where they had this idea of mutually assured destruction, MAD which is that if both side knows that the other is capable of destroying them completely this is the deterrent it's a very strange way of looking at the world, but it has a twisted kind of logic to it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, for example, Iran is trying to develop nuclear capability because if they have it, no one will attack them, you know? And this, and if you look at, maybe you would like to look at some of the countries that have nuclear capab- capability in the world, like Pakistan, for example. So when you hear about ISIS in northern Pakistan, it takes on a different... Uh, resonance when you realise that Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and it's more important. I know, I know, you've been in a Twitter spat today, and that's what you're worried about. But take a moment to think about ISIS in Pakistan, if you way. Anyway, so you go to the early warning system, and it's absolutely incredible. There should be some images now from it because you're allowed into the control room, like the the teaching room, the school, where. Young men and women would have come to be taught how to read, how to work this radio antenna, and all over the wall are these, um, like painted for like almost like frescoes. It was like it's like being in, um, being in the ashes of Vesuvius or something like this. I suppose in Pompeii. Well, I mean we can talk about that another time. But these etchings, not etchings, like paintings on the wall, very childlike, of like astronauts and of like. I think it would have been very um, anybody who's grown up in the with nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, and sure in the nineteen eighties you would have seen nineteen sixties like Lost in Space or something like this. All these old science fiction programs. This the idea of what the inside of a spaceship would have looked like in Lost in Space is how the schoolroom looked like. In, incredibly rudimentary knobs and levers and lights and bulbs that. By today's standards, look, it, it looked like something from the 1950s, but this was probably operational up until that moment, so that would be 1986. In fact, I'm, I'm not sure if even I would have to look up and see when they actually stopped using it. Actually, it's 1989. Now that I think about it, I just said that <laughs> like two minutes ago, which means that they kept on using this system um, after the explosion in Chernobyl, which is quite incredible. But it was so rudimentary and strikingly um, simple in its nature that I think it kind of scared people even a bit more who were on the tour because they thought, is it were these the tools with which people were um, wielding the destruction of the world? Essentially, they were. And, you know, you've all heard the stories about um, this one Russian general, I think in the early 80s who all the systems all of a sudden showed an early warning attack from the USA and it was he who stood down, stood down a response. Um, I think his name was Petrov and I know that it was 1983 and um, basically the system failed. It malfunctioned and it reported uh, incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles from the USA and the early warning system I've been talking about, this woodpecker, uh, reported this and he saw it As a malfunction. He saw it as uh, unreliable information, I guess, and took the unilateral decision, which is quite incredible, to not respond, uh, which basically stopped the world escalating into full scale nuclear war. And this was at the height of Cold War tensions. There'd been a, a plane shot down in Korea by the Russians. There'd been deployment of nuclear missiles by NATO all across the border with Russia. And the um, relations between the two superpowers were probably at their most strained possible. And so this guy Petrov was basically on duty and sometime after midnight... There are reports that one intercontinental ballistic missile was heading towards the Soviet Union, and he surmised that why would the USA attack with just one missile? Surely if they were going to attack, it would be a full-scale attack. So he concluded that the satellite system's reliability, which you know had been questioned in the past, was unreliable and decided that it was a false alarm. So there you go. This guy surmised that, or figured that if the United States was going to attack, it would be full scale and not just one and then four other missiles. Something to do with um, an alignment of uh, sunlight and high altitude clouds or something like this. I'm not exactly sure as the reasons why they gave for the malfunction. But this guy, basically the fate of, well, we could say the world, lay in his hands for a brief moment and he decided uh, not to strike back. Anyway to Mr. Petrov. If you're alive, I suppose we salute you. We certainly wouldn't be here right now listening to this or whatever it is you're doing. Anyway, so this is a really really strange situation because again, they show you the school room, you look around and then they go, okay, kind of like entertain yourself, disappear off now for 15-20 minutes and the reactor, or not the reactor, the, the, the rooms... I guess the schools, the facility that was just connected to this massive grasshopper system, um, I'd have to think of the proper name for it, but were so dangerous. Like there was 20-foot drops into black nothingness that if you didn't have the light on your phone on, you were going to fall down. I'm not sure how many broken skulls and legs there must be every year from people visiting, but it was beyond dangerous. In fact, so dangerous that some of the people with... Who were in our party just went, nah, I'm out of this one. Um, of course, made me more want to more like scale across little ledges and into even more dangerous parts of this building. But it what really struck me was how ruined, how much this had fallen apart. But at one stage would have been an absolute state-of-the-art piece of technology. And to yet, to somebody who'd grown up with American cultural hegemony. It looked like um, it almost looked like a toy setting from something like Lost in Space. Anyway, so you move from Pripyat then into the kind of, I, I suppose you'd call it the inner sanctum of Chernobyl. And what they do then is um, they make you kind of go to what seems to be like a well, it feels like a turnstile, like an old school turnstile at a f- football ground, but a football ground that. Hasn't been updated since the 70s. Actually, proper football ground, not the horrible um, commercial ventures they have now. But an old school turnstile. And this light goes green or goes red or whatever and tells you, um, you know, you have your sort of like irradiated passport then to say that you've come in and out of Chernobyl. But the whole thing feels a bit like... um, It feels very much like theatre that this machine hasn't worked since... 1982 or something like this but they make all the tourists go through it make a big deal out of it and you're then in you're then into the kind of inner zone around Chernobyl and in in a really classic Soviet touch they allow you to have your lunch in the canteen that was there at the time and is still full of uh, you know grumpy old Russian uh, babushka women dealing out the Dealing out the borscht, and with local people who are working there, I suppose some scientists who are still there, people who are observing the most expensive and biggest man-made structure in the world, I think, which is the sarcophagus around um, around over rea- uh, reactor four, and it is a, it's it's a really classic classic touch of. Russian charm that you get to sit beside all these people who work there and you're the tourists and you eat the same food. And it's this very brutalist kind of building, this very grey on grey on grey building. Um, And, you know, this is these are the people essentially that are guarding the site, which I mean, according to Wikipedia or according to Wikipedia, um. The nuclear cleanup is not scheduled for completion until 2065. 2065. Um, And the construction of this sarcophagus has cost uh, $68 billion. Anyway, and it's had up to 500,000 personnel work on it. And so you you eat your lunch beside these people and you just sit around... um, you know, take your little plate of borscht and cabbage and you're among the people who work there protecting what is essentially a building that if it fell, well, not if it fell apart, but if it certainly, if something happened to it, I don't know, an earthquake or something, that it could again destroy most of Western civilization if something else happened to it and something went off I mean, if we're to compare nuclear events, Chernobyl put 400 times more radioactive material into the Earth's atmosphere than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. A man by the name of Vasily Nestorenko, a nuclear physicist that worked in Chernobyl, um, he claimed, our experts studied the possibility and concluded that the explosion would have had the force of three to five megatons. Minsk which is now in Belarus, which is 320 kilometers from Chernobyl, would have been raised and Europe rendered absolutely uninhabitable, um, which is insane, really, if you think about it. That was, that's if there had been uh, a steam explosion. But Mr. Nestrenko might be mistaken with his uh, scientific observations because according to Insane Clown Posse, uh, water, fire, air and dirt, fucking magnets, how do they work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. your motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed. I mean, you know, they also have a point. Do we really understand the science behind all this? While you're there eating your cabbage, you definitely get a feeling of um, not quite impending doom, but it's a very odd feeling because it feels like you've stepped back in time. But yet these people are minding something that is so important. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So then you actually get to go to reactor 4 and this is um this was really strange there were some people on the tour who didn't want to get out to, of the van and didn't want to go they kind of said look you know we're getting a bit freaked out we we might just stay in the in um, the mess room here stay in the canteen and not really go too close because they do only recommend that you spend, I don't know, whatever it is, half an hour, an hour within the radius of Reactor 4. So, we got the van in and got out of the van, and the guy counter just, just going insane. That's like the third or fourth time I've said insane, right? So you see where my brain went there, in that I had to try and get an insane clown posse quote into one of the first 25 episodes of the podcast. That it's taken me this long is somehow a scandal. But anyway. The crazy little woman doing the, doing our guide work, took us over to uh, a bridge over a river. Well, I won't call it a river, but an artificial river and started to drop some crumbs in the water and these massive, huge fish just jumped out of the water. Like, that would have taken your arm off. And she was just telling us that they're um, basically radioactive fish that have been deformed by the amount of radioactivity and because they have no other predators have like almost taken like a spurt, an evolutionary spurt and were not, these were the only kind of fish like this in the world and sure enough, we were watching this for a while and it felt very, very oppressive because you were literally standing 40 or 50 meters from Reactor 4 just looking at this huge sarcophagus which they built, like concrete sarcophagus, over over the 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 that's the site, um. And as I said, it's you know the biggest man-made construction in the, on the face of the earth, as I understand. And it felt oppressive. The air felt strange and heavy, and it did feel like. And we weren't wearing masks or anything like this. And it did feel, you were stood there with your Geiger counter going off the charts, and it did it did feel, sort of like we shouldn't really be standing here. This somehow seems like, not the best idea that we are standing 30, 40 yards from the site of the greatest nuclear disaster in the world. I'm sure you can't stand 20 yards from Fukushima or whatever. Uh, That was the reactor in Japan in 2011 that uh, went down. But I'm pretty sure they don't. Japanese don't allow you to. But, you know, back then, the Russians, I think, or Ukrainians have a sort of kind of fly-by-night attitude a bit to it. Maybe that's wrong to say, but it struck me as a kind of Irish attitude. Asher, you'll be grand. Get back in the van, lads. Come on, don't be messing, Uh, kind of thing. And this was the one stop on the van journey where I didn't disappear off uh, and do my own thing because you really were um, very, very cognizant of the fact that you were in the presence of something very ominous. Very, very ominous. It felt very oppressive. The air almost felt heavy. Very, I suppose, well, radioactive, which I suppose it was. So you get like 20 minutes, 30 minutes to look around, poke around, kick a few little concrete blocks around the place, look at the big weird fish, uh, feel like your brain is about to explode, and then back in the van and you start to make your way away from Chernobyl. Uh you hand in your Geiger counter which is a shame because I was starting to get you kind of used to having it um, and as you move away from it you definitely feel a sense of well you feel a little bit lighter the further away from it you go and you make your way through the woods and there's a few stops to look at a few other strange bits and pieces and houses where people have continuously lived No, I'm not an anxious person but there's absolutely no doubt that when I was standing 20, 30 yards from Reactor 4 with the Geiger Kanto in my hand, I did feel pretty anxious, pretty heavy. It's almost like your body or your brain is throbbing. And as you made your way back away from it through the forest again, it just started to die down almost exactly like, as you know, when you're in movies when you've watched um, a plane or something disappear in the ocean or oh, in the. Bermuda Triangle or something and all of a sudden the dots and the noises stop or that's what it really felt it really felt um, like you were moving away from something very very ominous and you go through the little turnstile again clean the mud off your shoes like you know not too vigorously or anything but like kind of please clean the radioactive mud off your shoes I mean there are statues in Kiev which if you held a Geiger counter up to them, whatever they're made of has absorbed an incredible amount of radioactivity because like they, the Russians held their May Day parade um, anyway, only a week after Chernobyl in Kiev, when the levels of radioactivity in the in the city were through the roof. But because the, because the Soviet apparatus didn't tell the people, it didn't tell its public what was what had really happened. Um, They masked the truth from people for, uh, you know, a month at least. And it's during this time that countries like Belarus got hit with the brunt of the radioactive material. And it's hard to calculate the deaths uh, because, you know, the, the state apparatus said that not that many people died. But, you know, objectively, tens of thousands of people most likely died. Or, at the very least, were polluted. In, and you've probably seen those heart-wrenching videos, maybe you haven't, of, um, you know, orphanages full of deformed babies and stuff in, in, in the Ukraine and Belarus and Russia. Um, but, like I said, you got you got your own problems. I suppose a little bit like thalidomide babies, which was a scandal from the late 70s, early 80s, you would have maybe, oh, well, another modern cultural reference from me, anyway. And like I said I'm not going to go into all the technical details of Chernobyl um, or try and retell the the you know the the TV series that was that kind of thing you can look into that yourself it's more of just a kind of a rambling podcast about my feelings about being there illustrated with some of the little the photos and the, the videos that I took which just might be interesting for some people but for sure this was in my I hate to say my bucket list because it sounds so sort of western and entitled to be able to have the funds to travel, to be able to have a bucket list. But you know, when you're in a when you're in a band, you are afforded some what should we call them travel geographical luxuries, maybe that other people don't get or haven't haven't had the possibility to have. Um, and I never ever to, would take that for granted. But certainly, I've been in a few very strange places because of being there with the band and there was no way I was going to go to kiev and not try and take a day trip to uh, chernobyl um so there you go if you've ever met me or hung around with me long enough uh you've probably got some form of radiation um you might need to get yourself checked um i was i was i was uh you know nuclear before i had the virus no it's um I don't know how it will be now. I imagine in the um, post-Chernobyl TV series world that they started to bring bigger buses of people and make it into more of a proper tourism venture and probably the price went up. I would imagine if they were able to because when I went on it, it was just a small van with maybe seven or eight people in it and it was definitely not a a high-end exercise, that's for sure. But you certainly, and you came back at like seven or eight in the evening and you felt like you'd had, this was a day trip. I've been on other day trips in other countries to see other things. And it's been a bit of a letdown. But this for sure was um, a very sobering, dark and interesting experience that maybe I haven't quite illustrated too well with words how arresting some of the scenes were, especially in... I suppose what you would call like the rural old um, buildings because Pripyat was built basically for the employees of Chernobyl. It was a relatively modern city at the time, but there were other dwellings around Pripyat which were older. So you get these strange, almost like cottages, ruined cottages, which pointed to a, a Russia an older Russia before Pripyat was built, before nuclear power, before all of the things that Chernobyl became known for. And it was equally as ruined. It was as equally in ruins. And those scenes are very interesting, very strange. The The sea of crosses that you see, um, of all the, I guess, all the workers who died there. and pe- As I said, and people, men, old men and women with faces like Uh, Leather, uh, who just basically said, fuck you, to the explosion and never left and were old at the time and just basically decided to take their chances. And so there you go. That was a rambling um, sort of, you know, maybe these things are, I suppose, for me, interesting to do before the memories become a little bit more vague. But... There are a lot of photos. Hopefully they illustrate some of the strange journey a little a little bit more, if you're looking on YouTube. And I'm going to do a few of these, uh, because I, I, in this strange period of lockdown, it seems like we somehow need a little bit more of an escape, of a time of better time when we were allowed to travel more open, more freely. And often I sit now and think about, oh, you know, this time you were in Easter Island or in Chernobyl or in... Yeah, you know, this... Uh, other, other strange places. So I'm going to roll out a few of them every now and again and try and illustrate them with uh, some things on YouTube. So that was my strange day I spent in Chernobyl, one of the most sobering and curious places I've ever been to. And there's no doubt about it that it feels like somewhere where a pivotal moment in human history was played out, where something incredibly serious and drastic and as I said and I've said like three or four times ominous happened um, and that's it really hope you enjoyed it uh, I should have mentioned them at the top but of course I always forget uh, Instagram is nemthiango underscore primordial Patreon, patreon.com slash Alan Averill with two capital A's and until the next time Agitators Anonymous, Metal Never Bends thank you my friends